You're listening to Radio Influence. You are sitting ringside with David Penzer on Radio Influence. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another edition of City Ringside. My name is David Penzer. We are so glad that you are here once again to listen to this thing we call a podcast. And what a podcast it is, man. I am excited. Right off the bat, I'm going to tell you, if you haven't heard about it on social media, if you don't follow me. By the way, if you don't follow me, hit me up at, at David Penzer. Uh, all one word. But we got Scott Hall on this week. Scott Hall, not only one of the, the greatest storytellers in the business, uh, one of the biggest legends in the business, uh, changed the Monday Night Wars, changed the game, uh, a lot of controversy uh, in different ways, and uh, WWE Hall of Famer. Uh, went to a, uh, I was actually a host at an event this past, last weekend, uh, called uh, Wrestling Rewind, the Wrestling Rewind. And I will give huge props to the guy, the gentleman who put it on the show. I've said this on social media as well. Um, it was a black and white event uh, with Scott Hall and Kevin Nash. Uh, it was at a uh, like a sort of like a club uh, slash like like a wedding hall uh, building. Uh, it was extremely well done for the first event uh, for this uh, company. Uh, the attention to detail was just unbelievable. Everything was black and white. Uh, the the when we did the Q and A with 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 Scott and Kevin, uh, they had you know a huge uh, uh, video screen in the back showing black and white you know footage of the NWO from WCW and uh, cardboard cutouts of every major NWO name and uh, photo stations and video game tournaments and. I didn't know at the time. I thought the video game tournaments, I thought the winner got a belt, which they did. I also found out later, like the winner, the, the main one got a thousand bucks. And I'm thinking they were awful calm for a thousand. If I was playing a video game for a thousand bucks, I'd be like, I'd be really into it. You know, a thousand bucks. That's a lot of money. And uh, they were like, they were like, all right, good luck. I thought it was for two for a belt, like a championship belt. You know, and that would that, that that's cool as well. But a uh, thousand bucks. But um, there were some vendors there. There's food. It was just um, it was a great event. And I give huge props. If you want to follow the wrestling rewind on uh, on Twitter or on Facebook, I'm sure I know they're planning a big WCW convention for next year. And maybe some other stuff around Christmas time. So uh, I got all the respect in the world and, and hope to work with them again. Kevin and Scott were in rare form, and I say that in a positive way. Uh, just told great stories and uh, and spent so much time with the fans. And uh, it just the, the, the turnout was great, and it was just a great event. So when I was there, I said to Scott, I said, hey, Scott, uh, anyway, you do my podcast. And he looked at me and he said, for you, I'll do it. He says, I hate doing them. I don't, I don't do them, but for you, I'll do it. And not, 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 not only did that mean the world to me, but, uh, uh, but, but he came through because, uh, in just a few moments, uh, now we're going to have Scott Hall on this podcast and, uh, very excited to talk to Scott. Uh, like I said, one of the greatest storytellers and, uh, doing great in his uh, life, it seems, and uh, knock on wood, but I'm really glad that uh, he's found uh, happiness 
And uh, when 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 Scott is in a good place, Scott is one of the good guys. It's funny his his whole gimmick is the bad guy, but when he's in a good place, he's one of the good guys. And uh, uh, it was great to see those guys. And uh, I want to thank Scott for for being true to his word and coming on sitting ringside. So without further ado, uh, want to bring him on, ladies and gentlemen. Please welcome WWE Hall of Famer Scott Hall. All right, ladies and gentlemen, my guest this week on City Ringside rarely does podcasts, but I saw him at an event last weekend, and I said, uh, will you do my podcast? And he looked up at me and said, for you, I will. And I appreciate it because he's here. He's a man of his word, and he's a legend, a WWE Hall of Famer. And uh, one of the top moments of uh, me being at Nitro uh, revolves around this man walking down some stairs in Macon, Georgia. So without further ado, please welcome Scott Hall. Scott, glad for you to be here, sir. Thank you. Hey, yo. Hey, yo. Hey, yo. <laughs> My pleasure. Hey, so I, I want to start off. Um, I know that you were living in uh, in Florida on the East Coast, and uh, you uh, CWF, Championship Wrestling from Florida, was around. And as the story goes, and just wanted to get a little clarification, you, you became friends with uh, some of the talent. Dusty Rhodes took a, a liking uh, towards you, and that's how uh, you started training. Tell me about how that happened and, and how you met the guys. Well, I first uh, when I first moved to Tampa, I joined every gym in town just to tr- find out where the wrestlers worked out and stuff. And I ran into an old-timer there around the gym, a guy called Harry Smith, who wrestled back in the day. And he introduced me to a Japanese man named Hiro Matsuda, who had was a big star with New Japan Pro Wrestling and was in the office at Florida Championship Wrestling. Yes, sir. Of course, I had no idea of that. So I worked out with him for a couple months, just doing, you know, calisthenics. And I ran into Barry Windham in a grocery store, and uh, he took me down to the sportatorium and, and worked out with me for three hours, he and Mike Rotundo. And then they drove later that day to Miami to wrestle. And I just never forgot that. Here's two guys, big stars. They didn't want anything from me. They didn't charge me anything. Just gave me time out of it because I guess they thought I had some potential. And I'll always remember, you know, that those guys doing that for me. That's awesome. I, uh, you know, I, I didn't know that part of the story. And of course, Hiro Matsuda trained, uh, tons of, uh, of, of people that went on to become huge stars in the sport, including, uh, Hulk Hogan as well. Did you know that he had trained Hulk Hogan when, uh, when, when you started training with him? No, we never, we never even saw a wrestling ring. I went to this little studio he had where he made like amateur singlets and stuff for like high schools. He had a, a sewing shop with three or four ladies working in there. And he had a little space cleared out just to do, you know, Hindu squats and push-ups and sit-ups. And I remember there was a gas station across the street. Again, this guy didn't charge me anything. Wow. He did it because the other guy, Harry Smith had recommended me. And every day after the workouts, I'd walk across the street, buy him a six pack of beer, bring it back and say, see you tomorrow. Yeah. That's how it was back then. There were no schools or anything in this era. This is, early 80s you know there were no wrestling schools or anything around you know the only way you trained was like when i finally got hired by dusty i used to go to the shows early and just hang around and hope somebody would get in the ring with me that's awesome so you not many guys were lining well it's not not many guys were lining up because i'm you know i'm six six about 290 <laughs> 
I'm like a I'm like a big career, and you're nobody's cement mixer. Nobody <laughs> wants to get in the ring with me. Oh, but but Wyndham and Rotunda did. God bless them. Yeah, they did. Unbelievable. So, so you went to Jim Crockett Promotions with Danny Spivey, and um, I've heard the stories about uh, in between bookings that they had you working the ground crew. I know there's been a lot of uh, in the in the advent of podcasts. There's been a lot of good good Klondike Bill stories, and I'm assuming you work with Klondike when you guys did the ground crew. Any good Klondike stories when you were working out there in uh, Jim Crockett Promotions? I remember I remember Klondike and. He reminds me of another old timer. Oh, gosh, I can't remember his name. When when I left, I begged Dusty to to send me to Kansas City from Charlotte. Although that you know Dusty was there, the territory was coming up and went on to be like a major powerhouse in the wrestling business, the Mid Atlantic Championship. But at that time, you know, I'd never had a match, so I would get to wrestle like once a month and make a good payday. But at that time, I wanted to just be in the ring more. Right. So I begged Dusty. I begged Dusty to send me to Kansas City, where you only got fifty bucks a night guaranteed, but you're in the ring six nights a week. And to me, the ring time was more valuable. And and the ring guy out there. I, this is when I first crossed paths with Shawn Michaels, and I never like to give a, a guy a bump that I won't take. I don't like being backdropped, so I never backdrop anybody. My whole career, I've only backed people who take it extremely well and Shawn Michaels does and we used to do it back then you gotta understand we're not making any money we're making 50 bucks we're grossing 50 out of that you gotta pay gas sometimes a hotel your food so we're basically walking out with 20 bucks a night and so just to keep ourselves amused I used to try to backdrop Sean into the ring light because the ring crew would get there and then they would hang a light over the middle of the ring every night we got to the point where, you know, we would do, I would backdrop Sean where he would actually hit the light. And every night the, the ring crew would raise it a little bit higher. So we probably <laughs> couldn't reach it, but, but we tried for the longest time. Those ring crew guys are, are legends. You know, nowadays, even in NXT, they make the talent get there for every non-televised show, every live event. The talent that wrestles, even the people not on the card, have to be there to set the ring up and tear the ring down. Well, when I first started ring announcing in the business, uh, one of my things is if I wanted to ring announce, I had to put up and take down the ring. My little five foot six inch, uh, 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 no, 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 not an ounce of uh, of uh, 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 coordination, but uh, I did it. And uh, you know, it's, you got to pay your dues. And just like working for twenty bucks a night and trying to entertain yourself by seeing if you could hit the ring light. But I'm sure that that the the experience you got in Kansas City was, you know, really helped you go to where you went after that, which is the AWA. Yeah, it was great. I, I remember getting contacted at that time. Um, St. Louis was really a hotbed of wrestling. And although there wasn't a particular office operating out of St. Louis, guys would come in like the top matches. The main events would be stuff from, you know, the AWA in Minneapolis. Guys would come from Charlotte. Guys would come from Dallas. And then the opening matches would be the Kansas City guys. And we'd drive to St. Louis and we'd be the opening undercard for second, third matches. And I was there and I met Jack Lanza, who was a big star for the AWA at the time and also still wrestling. And he was at the end of his career, so he was in the office as much as he was in the ring. 
And he came up to me and said, like, hey, kid, are you ready to make a move? And I remember going, no, I'm not ready. And he said something to me I never forgot. He said, everybody's the shits when they start. And I said, as long as you feel that way, hell yeah, I'm ready to make a move. <laughs> you know, as, as long as you're going to be patient with me, hell yeah. And that was my first break, you know, into the big time. You know, ESPN, uh, you know, it was nationwide TV, and, and they were pushing me at a time when guys didn't, the business was changing. Guys were getting pushed on how they look. You know, it was marketing and merchandising became more a part of the business instead of just being able to perform in the ring. And so I had a look that they liked. And, and when it came down to merchandise, I think little kids are going, I think that big muscle guy can beat that fat guy. <laughs> so that's when, uh, you know, the business changed in the mid-80s, early 80s. And guys who had the look were getting pushed to the to the disdain of everybody else in the locker. You know, all the guys who could actually perform hated you because, oh, this big muscle guy's getting a push and he can't do anything. And I'm thinking, why are you mad at me? I'm just doing what I'm told to do. Why don't you do what you're told to do? But it was, you know, there was no guaranteed money at that time. So everything was really competitive in the locker rooms. It was really like a shark tank environment. I could imagine. Hey, looking back, uh, knowing what you know now, do you think that one of the reasons that uh, that uh, they did so bad in the Kansas City territory uh, was because their stars, quote unquote, would go and open the matches in St. Louis and then have to go headline Memorial Hall two nights later in Kansas City? Um, yeah, you certainly to as a from a fan's perspective, you would have to agree with that. You know, because here we are jabronis when it comes to the big scheme of wrestling, but in our small little niche, we're the top guys. So certainly it had the impact stuff. Yeah, I never thought of that, but uh, when you said that, it it made me think. So you went to the AWA, and I know that uh, you talked last weekend and uh, about how much Kurt Hennig meant to you and, and took you under your under his wing. Uh, tell me about what he taught you, not only about the wrestling in the ring, but, uh, but you know, riding up and down the roads. Um, Kurt, again, I, I'm on record as saying that he's the most unselfish guy I've ever met. And you got to remember, this is when there was no guaranteed money. So basically, you know, I'm a baby face. I'm a good guy. And he's a good guy. So we're competing for the same spot but he's not threatened. And in fact, he's comfortable with setting me up to be featured. They put us as a tag team. Kurt sold every match, tagged me. I made the comeback and beat the guy. And he didn't care. He seemed to enjoy it. And then he would, we would get in the car and he would go, okay, remember when this was happening? I go, yeah, yeah. He goes, okay, what were you thinking? I go, well, I was thinking this. He goes, okay, because this is what everybody else was thinking. You know, he would, <laughs> He kind of taught me how to hear the fans. And I try to tell this with young, to, to young talent when I speak to them. So many times when you're brand new, you're just trying to remember what to do. You're trying to remember what comes next and what's after this and what's after that. And you don't really pay attention to the audience. And there comes a point where you have to be able to hear the people because sometimes you have to be able to edit or change directions with the story you're telling in an instant. Because what you did last night in Cleveland isn't working in Chicago. You know, the audiences are different everywhere you go. And you got to be able to react on your feet. And until you start doing that, you really don't enjoy the business as much as you can, in my opinion. 
Yeah, it's a totally different business now. I mean, when I was in, when we were in WCW, the only time you saw a, a match that was going to take place later, like in the ring early before the show started, was maybe to go over different camera shots that they wanted to get. But now you go to, I don't know how it is in WWE, but I, when I went back and ring announced for Impact uh, last year for a couple of months, I mean, every single match is in the ring pre-planning everything spot for spot. I, I don't know if you know Scott Demore, but he it's in charge of impact and i looked at him and i said do they do they plan everything in advance and he said the only one that doesn't is alberto del rio who was there at the time he said everything else is 100 percent choreographed and i just i looked at him and i said god i couldn't even remember that it's crazy i don't know it, yeah, you, it, you were in nxt recently it, it, uh is it like yeah, that there the same thing it the same thing happens there and it happens on the main roster wwe as well you know, often when they come here to Atlanta, I go down to the show and say hi to the guys. And, and you know, you have to get there early. You can't really talk to anybody. So I get there at 5 or 6 before the show starts. And usually there's people in the ring. And I'm not just talking about newbies. I'm talking about people who've been around. They're in the ring and they're going over everything. But, again, like you mentioned, often with the crew so that they know if you're going to do something really cool, we don't want to miss it. Let's all work together. I think that's more the attitude is to make sure they capture the camera shots. But the days of just calling it um, are, are, are gone. I mean, I, I think still some of the major players, the top guys on the WWE roster probably still wing it. I'm a big fan of Alberto Del Rio. I think he's great. I think he should call his stuff in ring because he's good enough to lead somebody else through it. And, and he does hear the people. So, uh, I just try to realize that you have to adapt with the times. I don't want to be labeled as some bitter old timer who's going, well, back in my day, we <laughs> called it in a ring. Well, your day has passed there, buddy. We don't call it in a ring anymore. Now we talk. We call it before the masses. In fact, we rehearse it, and that's just the way it goes. So you just have to adapt to that. There's no, no point sitting around going, well, we never did it that way before. Well, we never had cell phones before. You know, there used to be a thing called a phone booth. You know, like times change. Absolutely. Uh, I saw a phone booth recently. I took a picture to show my kids because I didn't know if they knew what it was. Uh, getting back to Kurt for a minute, uh, as much as he helped you as far as uh, in, in the ring, I've been with him. Uh, you've probably been with him way more than I have. Uh, bless him. God bless him. Uh, outside the ring after the show, how much fun is, was Kurt? And uh, any, any, Do you have a favorite rib that uh, of Kurt's? Because I know that there's tons of them. He he was from the Mister School, Mister Fuji School of Ribbing. <laughs> so he so so he had like the you know the the gentle ribs, or he could go really vicious with the ribs. The thing I remember about Kurt is he made it. You know, you can wake up wake up in the morning and go, "Oh God, I got to go to Boise, Idaho." Or you can go, "All right, I'm going to Boise." You know, like Kurt made it feel like wherever we are is the place to be if you're not here you're missing out you should have been in boise man it was great you know it's another thing i learned from kurt was when you come back from the from the ring and uh one of your bosses the promoter an agent comes up and goes how was your match the first thing you say is did you see it and if they go no you go oh my gosh tore the house down <laughs> always put always put yourself over always put yourself over but, I mean, I think one of my favorite ribs of Kurtz, and there was so many, and there are not many you can talk about publicly, but um, he was big on shaving guys' eyebrows off. 
And so when the one, two, three kid came in to New York, he beat this guy called Razor. And then they had a rematch six weeks later, and then he took 10 grand from Razor. So kid is getting a push at that time. And, and it's the first time I met him was the night he beat me. And he is in the bar. Now he is flying in out of Minneapolis where, where Kurt is also. And so Kurt has him in the bar, hotel bar. He's not even old enough to drink. I think he's like 18 or 19. And he's going, drinks for everybody. And he's hammered. And <laughs> he's, he's so hammered. He's smoking a cigar. He's putting the wrong end in his mouth. He's putting like the lit end in. Like, oh. And the next day, he woke up. Now, normally when somebody's eyebrows would get shaved at that time, the whole thing was to shave one. And then in the morning, try to talk the guy into shaving the other one off himself. Like going, hey, man, it looks really crazy like that. You might as well balance it out. <laughs> but kid woke up with both his eyebrows shaved. You know, apparently <laughs> he generated enough heat by being just young and cocky in the bar that he woke up with both eyebrows shaved. Now, the part that's really funny is Hasbro, a lot of action figures come, have come out these days. But back in that era, Hasbro was a big deal if you had a Hasbro action figure. So kid got his. But the publicity photo that they used on the on the cover of the doll and went on to be his publicity photo for years in the WWE was a picture he had where he had no eyebrows. <laughs> and it just, it looks crazy. And actually, I've seen now on, on the trading market that because of the story and the picture with no, no eyebrows, the doll is actually worth more. Of course like it collectors, is. The doll is worth yeah, more. Yeah, sure. I have sitting here in my office right now, I have a black Jimmy Hart action figure from WCW when Jimmy first went in. And because he was so tan, they thought that he was uh, African-American. So they made that first run. Oh, first, I'm looking at it right now. Jimmy signed it. That first run of dolls. Oh was, he's he's actually, uh, you know, his hands are, are black. And it's, uh, it, yeah, so it's the same thing. Uh, yeah, I agree with you, though, by the way. And I've talked about it on this podcast that you said it last weekend that out of all the guys we've lost, I miss Kurt the most, and uh, he was one. He, uh, not to get everybody down, but he was just a great guy. So I, I see you went to uh, Germany in 1990, uh, catch wrestling, and I, I I got to go over to England after WC and Germany after WCW went out of business because Fit Friendly became a great family friend of mine, and the, the the tour that I was on was sort of like a Germany reunion with Drew McDonald and Robbie Brookside, Tony St Clair, Fit Dave Taylor, and I, 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 those guys are such a hoot. I mean, and uh, and and so good in the ring. Just wondering uh, how how that was different working in the same town every night, uh, and and how it was to be around those guys. Well, you just named off. I mean, Fit Finley's great. Dave, uh, Dave Taylor, Tony, Tony Sinclair. These guys are all legends and were really helpful to me. And in the wrestling business, to be able to stay in one town five or six weeks, then move to a new town for two or three weeks, it was kind of like the circus. It only came to town once a year, but always at the same time. They only, you know, there was no TV coverage, so they just advertised on local papers, but drew good crowds. And the thing is, at that time, they had a round system, like you would do three-minute rounds. And the cool thing about that is for a young guy looking for experience, it was perfect because if you went five rounds, it was almost like having five matches where you got to employ the start and stop psychology. And, and like 
during the round, if, if, if the other guy was selling and I was always the villain. So, you know, between rounds, they play music and stuff like that. And as the DJ's turning the music down and be, right before the guy would ring the bell, I would, I would start hitting the guy. We're, and the fans are so educated, they knew the rules. It's like, hey, he's cheating. You know, just little. I learned how to be really detailed. The, the European audience is really hip. They're sophisticated. So, like, I really tuned my psychology up a lot there. And then working with great guys like Finley and Taylor and St. Clair, who can all wrestle. So I, I'm a little concerned now, but here comes the grouchy old guy. Like so many guys are just bouncing around and diving over the ropes and doing a lot of stuff in the very first match. I came up in a time when, when every territory was a small company and everything. If you're on the second match, you weren't allowed to fight on the floor. You couldn't kick and punch. You had to wrestle because they were saving all the spectacular stuff for the main event, for the last match. Now I understand because guys, there are no territories anymore. Guys come from independent companies where they go in, they have no loyalty to the company. Their loyalty is to themselves, and it should be. So they go in and just get their stuff in. You know, it's all about get your shit in, man. <laughs> and it's all changed now. But in those eras, we all worked together as a team. And I just, some of the happiest times of my life. I mean, it was like having a real job. You would leave the hotel and, you know, at that time, I had a girlfriend living with me. It'd be like, okay, baby, I'll be back in a couple hours. And you come back, man. You know, once you make the big time, I used to stand on the street. The WWE broadcast would be, we were in Vienna, Austria, and the hotel was right around the corner from an electronics store. So they had all the TVs facing the streets. And the WWE show would come on at midnight in Austria. And I would go stand on the street and just stand in front of the monitors and watch, watch the show. And sometimes my girl would come with me and I'd be going, well, I know that guy. And I know that guy. Like some of the guys I'd started with guys like Shawn Michaels, guys like Kurt Hennig had moved on to Vince. I remember going, you know, you got to understand now, if I ever make it to where these guys are, I ain't going to be home all the time. Like I'm now I'll be home like a couple of days a month, but the trade-off will be like a big pay increase. And it's kind of the way it worked out. The whole staying together thing didn't work out, but, <laughs> but the <laughs> increased work schedule and increased pay work. Folks, with Fall Fest approaching, there is so much going on, and I love this time of year. The NFL is back. College football is going strong. The baseball playoffs and World Series right around the corner. Don't forget, for wrestling fans, Survivor Series at the Staples Center in Los Angeles, California, plus some huge concerts coming up. I believe Elton John is on his farewell tour, last chance to see one of the best of all time. And with Vivid Seats, you can attend the concert show or sporting event of your choice at a great price. Vivid Seats is the top source for tickets for all live events. Sort by price or look for seats in the section or row of your choice and to make things even better. Vivid Seats is giving listeners an exclusive promo code for new customers to get 10% off your first purchase with Vivid Seats to save even more money. Go to the App Store or Google Play and download the Vivid Seats app. Use promo code INFLUENCE. I-N-F-L-U-E-N-C-E for 10% off your first purchase with Vivid Seats. Every purchase backed by a 100% buyer guarantee and from the biggest concerts like Elton John's Farewell and football games to the hottest theater. God, I wish hair was back on Broadway. Can we start a, a petition? 
Anyway, Vivid Seats has it all. Download the app and enter promo code INFLUENCE for 10% off your first purchase with Vivid Seats. Make a memory that lasts a lifetime, whether it be a football game, a baseball game, a concert, or a wrestling event, and let Vivid Seats help you get to your favorite live event. Check out Vivid Seats today. So you come back in 1991 to WCW as the Diamond Stud. It seemed like towards the end they were aligning you with the Dangerous Alliance, and you it seemed like you were getting a little bit of a push. And then you uh, just left and went to uh, to WWF. The rest is really history. But uh, in hindsight, obviously you made the right decision. But at the time, why did you walk away uh, from WCW? Well, at the time, um, I got together with Dallas. Diamond Dallas Page, and actually Dally gave me the whole look. He, at that time, I'm laying home. Now my then-girlfriend is now my wife, and she's pregnant with my first kid. And I need a job. And I'm about ready to give up on this wrestling dream. So if I need a job, and I need it now, and the lowest-paid guy in wrestling does okay. So I remember thinking, like, I called Dallas. I said, man, I need a job. And he was really close with Dusty then, who was booking WCW, and he would call me in the middle of the night and go, bro, 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 I got it. <laughs> you got to dye your hair black, man. He goes, you know, because at that time I had my hair kind of blonde because I worked in Japan a lot and it stood out. And, you know, I'm searching. Wrestlers had blonde hair, so I had blonde hair. I didn't know what was going on. Dallas gave me the black hair. I had a big old village people mustache. Dallas said, no, man, you got to lose that mustache. You got to have the Rob Lowe stubble. Dallas gave me the whole look. We were in a Waffle House eating, and he gave me the toothpick. We're paying our bill, and he goes, bro, I got it. Both have toothpicks. I mean, he gave me the whole thing. And we got together, and when I changed my look, I was amazed that people didn't know me. So it was great. It was like starting over, but I've been around a few years. And we got together and decided, you know, the fans don't know that I'm the lowest paid guy in the company. I'm going to walk out there and act like I'm a big deal. Let's start doing that. So we just started doing that for fun, and it started working. So I started to gain some steam. But then at that time, and this is the way business works, Rick Rude was leaving the WWE. He signed with WCW, and they felt that our gimmicks were too similar. And I'm like the lowest paid guy in the company. Rick's coming in with a huge deal. So obviously, they squashed my gimmick. They took Dallas away from me. He just kind of watered me down. And, and by the, you know, you got to remember, though, the first time I debuted as the Diamond Dud, <laughs> I got a call from Pat Patterson that Vince loved the gimmick. So I remember saying, Pat, I called your office every week for a year to speak to you. And, you know, you're never available. I said, well, I'm on their TV one time, and you call me twice. I said, I don't want to work for them. I wouldn't have called your office every week for a year if I did. He went, calm down, kid, calm down. You'd be able to tell him in a year, New York wants you. So one year later, Razor was born. So uh, it sounds like Razor Ramon was just a, like a tuned-up uh, version of the Diamond Stud. What did you change? You'd had the toothpick and the 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 the, 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 the Rob Lowe look and, uh, and the mustache and beard and all that. And So what was changed to make you stand out, or was it just the fact that they were giving you an opportunity? Well, of course they're giving me a push. I mean, Vince, when Vince, uh, when I was hired, I actually had to have a physical tryout where I had a match before TV, a dark match, and, and Vince liked it, and I was summoned to his office, and, and luckily I had the luxury of Kurt being with me because he was in a, he was like a liaison, and he, he was respected as a great performer, but he'd been injured, so now he was a commentator, but he was still like 
one of the boys, but he was still kind of quasi office. So he was in a great spot. And he's my longtime buddy. I'm nervous as hell. I'm going to meet with Vince McMahon, but I got my buddy there with me. And I'll never forget Vince goes, well, I understand your father's in the army. At that time, he was doing all this reality-based stuff. Like, Boss Man was really a corrections officer, so he was a corrections officer character. I remember looking at Vince going, Vince, you want me to be G.I. Joe? I'll be the best G.I. Joe I can be. <laughs> I said, you ever see Scarface? He went, oh, no. So me and Kurt just start doing the shtick back and forth from the movie. And Vince thinks I'm a genius. He thinks I'm making it all up. He started <laughs> laughing. He goes, he goes, okay, let's go with it. Let's go with it. And he goes, we need a name. So I've been thinking about names because I know I'm meeting best with Matt. So I was kind of doing like this matinee idol look with the black hair. So I was thinking maybe shrug shadow. Because business was different then. It was about marketing and having a kind of a catchy name. I remember I said catering and Road Warrior Hawk said, but about deadbolt. I remember thinking, <laughs> well, thanks, Hulk, but no, thanks, but no thanks. And so I came up with Razor, and I remember pitching Razor to Vince. He went, yeah, but there's already Razor Ruddock, like a heavyweight fighter. I remember going, I kick his monkey fucking ass. Vince just started laughing. He goes, that's great. We just need a last name. Starts with an R. I was in the restroom, like slicking my hair back. Tito Santana was in there washing his hands. I said, Tito, I need a last name. Starts with an R. He went, about more. I went right back to Vince's office. Knock, knock, knock. I said, Razor Ramon. He goes, that's it. And then, boom, it just, I mean, he personally, he left TV. where They were filming TV in Ottawa, in Canada. And he left TV and flew to South Beach with me, where we, and he personally directed, like, the first four vignettes. And I had taken different clothes because I know I'm getting a push. Now, they sent a guy from Connecticut to help me pick out a wardrobe, and I got this custom-made white suit that I first debuted in. And I remember I'm in Miami, and we're shooting one vignette, and we're changing locations. And I said, Vince, I'm, listen, I'll wear the white suit every time if you want, but I have some other outfits, too, if you want to see. He goes, yeah, let's see what you got. So, you know, I changed up because then it looks like time went by. You know, if every week you got the same outfit on, it's not the same effect as having different stuff on all the time. That's something I stole from Flair. Flair always had different colored gear, different colored boots. So I got, I contacted Flair and got the guy who made his boots. It was a Lion Boot Company in Houston. Whereas Razor, I had different outfits every time. And to the point where, the guy called me one time from Houston. He said, you and Ric Flair are my best customers, and I'm sending you a pair of free boots. What color you want? Yeah, yeah Flair uh, certainly stood out. He had the pink. He had the green. He had the red. He had the blue. It was, uh, And he had the matching. Uh, purple, the, purple, yeah. everything, yeah. Had the, the matching robe, too. Hey, I, I actually went, while I was uh, doing some research on for this uh, discussion, I went back and rewatched the ladder match from WrestleMania 10. Uh, it was, it was as, as we know, uh, and if you don't know, it was the first really major, I, I thought it was the first ladder match they ever had, but apparently uh, they had done some ladder matches in Calgary, Canada, uh, before then, uh, when well, the that's idea- not really that's not really proven. I stand by the statement <laughs> that me and Sean invented the ladder match. Brett had nothing to do with it. <laughs> when when you're presented with when you came up with the idea of the ladder match, uh, 
what were you what were you, what were you thinking? Because uh, you know you guys changed the. I mean, you know, there's no doubt you changed the business. The ladder match is a staple of uh, of 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 you know professional wrestling right now. So much that they have a whole pay per view named after one. Um, what happened was, you know, at that time the Vince was down to running two towns at night. So normally the Intercontinental Belt was on top in the B town, you know, the smaller town. And so normally between Sean and I, one of us had the belt. And at that time, Big Kev is traveling as Sean's bodyguard, and we're all traveling together. And we're just having a – I mean, the, the whole ladder match thing came about because one time Sean tested positive on the drug test for steroids. And I remember thinking, like Vince called me and to tell me about it. I remember thinking, Vince, I'm with Sean every day. I said – we barely have time to go to the gym. I said, I guarantee he's not knowingly taking roids. And at that time, you know, I'm not proud of it, but a lot of pills were being passed around in bars and stuff. And I think someone deliberately slipped Sean some oral steroid telling him it was something else just to be out of jealousy. Like I said, so many guys were jealous at that time. If you make more and they make less. And, but anyway, Sean was suspended for a period of time. They had a tournament, and I became the Intercontinental Champion. Well, then Sean came back. He had never lost the belt, so he kept wearing his belt, and I was the new champ. But people say, well, you never beaten Sean. I'm going, yeah, you're right. I haven't. Love to. So it was kind of cool. It was, it was organic, so that helped a lot. The whole storyline made sense, and it seemed like, well, the only way to settle this is to hang it from the ceiling, no rules, no ref, no time limit. Whoever gets it is clearly the winner. And it was really cool and it was fun to do because, you know, it's one of my best friends in the world, you know, and we're out there and we know it's doing good. You know, you can tell when things are doing great. And, uh, yeah, it was life-changing for me. I mean, that match paid for my first house. Wow. I wish I was your realtor. Uh, so uh, I, the one thing, first of all, the match I think still stands up, even though, you know, they've done crazier TLC matches and stuff like that. Uh, but second of all, uh, I noticed you did the match with one ladder. Was there like a, a backup ladder under the ring just in case that ladder broke? Or is that something you didn't even think about? That's something that was never considered. I mean, now the way these guys mangle ladders, I mean, we, there was one ladder under there. And had it broken, we'd still be standing in Madison Square Garden looking up the roof. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was just when nobody, nobody ever thought of that. And the thing is, too, like, you know, the, there's a crew guy who carries the ladder up and sets it in the aisle. So he's got it under one arm, carries it out there. Of course, when the rest of us, when we're, when we're carrying it, we're dragging it like it weighs a thousand pounds, you know. <laughs> but they got a little skinny crew guy takes it out on top of his shoulder. <laughs> it was just so many, so many little detailed things weren't really worked out, but uh, it was a great time. So you mentioned uh, traveling with Sean and and Kevin, and I know the the click at somehow at some point was formed, quote unquote, the click. Uh, was was this something that was planned? Did the the four of you guys sit down and plan that you were going to uh, join forces and take you know kind of quote unquote take over uh, the company or? Was it just it was just something that happened organically just because you guys were friends and enjoyed each other's company? Yeah, I mean, when you're on the road that much, we're on the road, you know, 290 days a year. And, you know, you just you fall into the guys that you can stand to be around. I mean, you know, you, you guys that you don't mind riding in the car with for five or six hours. Or guys, you know, we, we all paid for our own cars, our own hotel rooms. 
So, you know, if you can find a guy to share a room with, you're cutting your money in half, your expenses in half, because you're never in the room anyway. So it's like, I'm going to sleep here, get up and take a shower here, and then leave and go somewhere else the next day. So, like, if you found a guy you could share a room with and guys you could split a car with, it was to your advantage. And we were some just young, hungry guys where we were obsessed with wrestling. So we get in the car and we talk business the whole time. So it's just, but we weren't the only faction. I mean, you know, young um, Undertaker and Yokozuna and the Samoans and Tatak and guys like that, but they, they were the BSKs, the Bone Street Killers. And, you know, there was different other little factions around. Um, I don't know. I just thought it was kind of funny. I mean, we would play cards on the back of the tour buses, the BSKs versus the Click. I mean, it was always like a, <laughs> I felt like a healthy competition. Like, my Click's going to do this. What are, your, what are you guys going to do tonight? You know, follow that. Like, it was a healthy, competitive thing. Vince loves that kind of stuff. He loves the Shark Tank environment in the locker room because it creates competitiveness for guys who want to be on the top spot. I often wonder now, with everybody having come up through NXT, that you're guaranteed money once you're training. Those guys are paid to train. And I almost think that curbs your competitiveness because you only know you're going to make this much and you're never going to go above that. And you're only going to make this much. And I think it, I don't know. I, I never came up in that era, so I can't comment fully, but to me, it kind of, it curbs your competitiveness. Absolutely. Um, the, the curtain call. Do you remember whose idea that was? Yeah, I had, at that time, I had, I had already given my 90-day written notice to WWE and had finished up my commitments and we did one tour in England and Germany and then I had a couple of dates in the U.S. I had Hershey, Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, double shot. We did Hershey in the afternoon, Philly at night. Then Sunday night was in the garden, Madison Square Garden. And I remember all of a sudden, Vince and Pat came to every show. But Vince had never said a word to me about, you know, let's work this out. You know, like I gave my notice and he suspended me. You know, I was dirty on a drug test for weed that was six weeks old. Like he was so mad he suspended me. And it was just crazy. And so now, you know, I'm, um, I was supposed to work with uh, Goldust at the Garden, but he was injured. And so I worked with Triple H. And this was, he was just a young guy coming up, still doing the rich boy thing where he bowed down and all that all the time, like wearing the riding britches. And, but he was talented as hell. And he was already like with us. He was one of the click. And, uh, I had been having a, you know, just a regular match with him and in Hershey and, and Philly. And Pat Patterson came to me before the match. He went, okay, this is what I want you guys to do. And Pat laid out to me, which I think was one of my best matches I ever had in the garden at that point, and I did a job. You know, it was great. You know, I got out of there, tore the house down. No one got hurt. It's intermission now, and they're setting the cage up because Sean and Kev are going to wrestle in the cage. So I'm in there. I'm hugging Triple H. I'm thanking him. I'm sitting there. Wow, I made it. My commitments are done here. Now, man, now I go down to WCW and find out what's going on down there, but at least I know I'm getting this guaranteed dough. I may never be in front of a sold-out crowd again, but at least I know I'm getting paid. And then I'm summoned to Vince's office. Like, one of the agents walks in and goes, uh, Vince wants to see it. So I'm thinking, okay, it's kind of weird now. Like, it's over. But I went in, and he goes, damn it, you still work for me. He goes, how much some sons of bitches off you? And I said, Vince, 
I don't feel comfortable talking about this. I told Eric Bischoff I'm coming to work for him. So I don't really, you know, it's just how much. I said, I told him, ooh, he goes, that's pretty good money even when business is good. I said, I'm not asking <laughs> you to match it, Vince. I said, I'm not asking you to match it. You brought it up. So we're sitting there kind of like he's, and the cool thing was the way my deal was set up with WCW was Georgia has a some kind of clause where if, if I chose to come to work for WCW, all these things, it was called a letter of intent. If I choose to come to WCW, all these things are guaranteed for me, but I'm not required to come. If at the last minute I decide I want to stay with Vince, I can stay with Vince. So I had that as like an ace in a hole. But the way they kind of treated me and stuff, like you suspend me on a drug test, come on. You know, I just was thinking, I can't wait to get out of here. So we're sitting in there, and me and Vince are finally going to have this talk. Shawn Michaels comes busting and he goes, I want Razor to come out into the cage with me after the match. And Vince looked at both of us. He looked at Shawn. He said, is it important to you? And Shawn went, yeah. He goes, well, go make it happen. So me and Vince ended up our talk. He ended up wishing me luck and, and we left. And so now, you know, Shawn, I mean, Kev gets super kicked in the cage. One, two, three. Shawn's the man. I come wandered out, and Shawn Michaels and I have a big history in that building. We'd wrestled there several times. We had that ladder match we were talking about earlier there. So there's a history between Shawn and I. And so we come walking out, and I'm trying to milk it a little bit. Like, you're like, hey, what's up? And he just runs up to me and hugs me. So there goes all the milk in the thing. But and then the <laughs> next thing you know, I look down the aisle, and here comes Triple H. Ballsy move by him because he wasn't really that high on the food chain to be coming out and making that kind of a move, but he did. And it, it just morphed into this elaborate thing. I mean, a lot of the guys were – Vince didn't care at first because he didn't know what it was going to morph into. None of us had any idea. But the guy, all these guys who are now are staying, like Kevin and I are leaving. All these guys who are staying, some of the senior guys and stuff, were like, what the hell, Vince? These guys just went out there and basically killed our company, you know, by expo they exposed the business. Oh, and I'm thinking, no, we went out there to tell these people, thank you. And goodbye. Like, thanks for all the love, all the years and, you know, goodbye. Cause I doubted I'd ever be back in the garden. So it's just, that's kind of how it morphed out. I mean, I went from doing like cool thing then to like the next day coming down through the crowd in, in Georgia. You know, and for the rival comp, you know, comp, uh, company. And see, so many things change. Now guys get guaranteed money. Now there's a non-compete clause, like three months. Like you can't just leave one company and show up on the other one's TV because <laughs> because I did it and Vince, we're not letting that happen anymore. <laughs> so I mean, a lot of things have changed, but um, you know, I'm really I'm really happy to have a, have a small part of it. It's funny you mentioned making Georgia because pe people, at, you know, the reason I started this podcast is because people would have me on their podcasts and say, hey, we enjoyed your stories. You should do a podcast. So what the hell? Uh, but one of the things that people ask me the most, I've probably been asked 40 times, is my favorite WCW Nitro match or moment. I can't remember a match, but without a doubt, and I'm not saying this to kiss your ass because you're my guest. Uh, my favorite moment was when you walked down the steps in Macon, Georgia, and, and and did that promo because 
even though I knew at least, I don't know how many people in the building knew, but even though I knew that you were going to be walking down and, and grabbing a mic, I had no idea what the direction was. And when you did the billionaire Ted thing and you won a war, you got a war. Dude, a light bulb went off in my head and I was like, this is fucking brilliant. Uh, did you feel the same way? Did you feel like, holy crap, this is this is something that's going to that's gonna draw? Um. I didn't know. I was really happy that Larry Zabisco was there, and I have a long history with Larry, and he really helped me in my AWA days when he was a big star and I was nobody. And because Eric would have had me come down the aisle with ring music, because that's just the way things were done. And Bischoff and and Zabisco was like, no, no, he can't come through the crowd. He doesn't work here. You know, he has to come through the audience and interrupt the match, but not beat the guys up. Just walk in the ring, grab the match where the guys go, what a dick, Scott. What are you doing, man? You know, like where it looked real. I mean, it went to the point where for a lot of time, people who still work for the company weren't sure that we didn't get paid by Vince. Like, I mean, it was really a cool time in wrestling business because at that time, everything had gotten really cartoony in the WWE. WCW was lagging behind, but that time they were fixing to go with a big Mortal Kombat video game kind of thing. They were going to push uh, Glazier and all these Mortis and all these different characters they'd created after video games, which was so so far in the fantasy realm. Then we came in with this real angle like, no, where the big boys play, huh? You know, because WCW always took an aggressive stance. Anytime a performer left WCW, went to WWE, they would show Sting beating the guy on TV and go, where the big boys play. You know, like, <laughs> it was just so silly that it was. It seemed only natural that Vince would finally have a response. Like, okay, this is where they play. I'm sending two of my guys to crush your company. Because no one had ever left Vince on top before, too. Everybody got recycled down. Then they left and went to WCW. Kev and I were the first ones to leave on top. So it was all groundbreaking stuff, and I find it really flattering that people care so much that here we are 20 something years later, still talking about it. <laughs> I still, I still probably watch that, that promo once every six months just to, cause people ask me about it. And it, I just, I still think I'm again, I'm not kissing your ass. I I've said this many times. I just thought it was, uh, it was I, a light bulb went off in my head. Like I said, not to repeat myself. And I was like, Oh my God, they got something here. As far as having something here, when did you find out that they were thinking about putting you guys with Hogan for him to turn heel? And what was your original reaction when you heard? Well, at that time, Hulk was making a movie because Eric's plan early on was that we're going to turn Hulk heel. But Hulk at that time in his contract had creative control over anything his character does. And it was a tough decision for him because having been a hero for so long and like the top babyface in the world, but at that time too, like fans were harsh and, and the Hulkamania gimmick was getting a little stale and, and they were booing Hulk like Nitro would tape an hour. They do one hour live and tape an hour or something at that time. And, and Hulk said that they would wait till the live hour and they would just start chanting. Oh, get sucked. Oh, get sucked to the point where Hulk couldn't even go out on TV. Like, your highest-paid guy can't even appear because he's getting booed out of the building. And Hulk is a sweetheart. He was like, man, he goes, brother, that stuff gets to you. And it does. I mean, you can say what you want, but when people are booing you, it sucks. I mean, when you're not supposed to be booed. Like, when you're the sure. hero and they boo you, it sucks. 
So he was smart enough, but we didn't know. We left for the ring that night in Daytona Beach, not knowing for sure if Hulk was going to come out. You know, we didn't know. I was happy when he came. It was an awesome, awesome uh, reaction. I, I'll, again, something I'll never forget sitting at ringside with uh, all the, I mean, organically, the place just started throwing stuff at the ring. Uh and 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 I, I guess the rest is history. If it, looking back now, um, there's been a lot of discussion on on how the NWO should have ended. Uh, looking back now, do you have any opinion of how they should have ended that angle, or if they should ended that angle? Well, to me, the everything we did was working, so it just became a it became this never ending building the NWO. Like anybody who had any kind of TV on the WWE, any kind of TV exposure there, they brought them in, turned them in NWO, NWO, to the point where it got really diluted. And I've said this before that I think, although guaranteed money is great, it does kill your drive because sure. it was like, yeah, let's get a bunch of NWO guys because then they can go wrestle on Saturday TV. Like, you know, they wanted an NWO presence, presence, uh, presence on the Saturday show. And it was like, no, man, that's one more day on the road for me. That means I got to go Tuesday to film stuff that's going to air Saturday. Just put these guys there. You know, Hulk only made TV, Nitro and pay-per-views. So we were, you know, we, we, me and Kev made all the house shows and the Nitros and the pay-per-views. We were trying to stay off that Saturday TV at least. And, uh. It just became, yeah, I think it was a really bad move. I think we should have kept it really exclusive. Because it got to the point then where the only the only people we could draw money against was NWO. We had to split the NWO in order to have opponents. I mean, at that time, often I'd do radio interviews, and the DJ would say, are you a good guy or a bad guy? i go, it depends on how popular the other guy is. If he's not a main guy, if he's not a main guy, they're going to like me. Because we left the WWE as baby faces, as, as good guys. So to come in, I mean, unless it was Sting or Lex or somebody, we were, you know, they were getting booed. Absolutely. Um, yeah, you, you did the survey, and you know, I, I think the survey, uh, the NWO is like uh, uh, 980 to, to zero. Uh, is favor the survey. How, how'd you come up with that? And, uh, and uh, uh, what are your memories of, of, you know, I can remember as the ring announcer, there was a constant. Well, it just, I don't know. It just seemed like something to do. And then it kind of gained fun. momentum. And then it just came to the point where you got to understand we had so much sizzling heat in the back. Cause they go, man, these guys are all up the show. All they do about the book. I think, yeah, we also filled the building for you. Like all these guys, all these mid-card guys who went on to have great success later when they left, went to WWE, and they're all bitching and moaning about, man, you know, these guys are all over the TV, they don't do shit. Don't do yeah, well, we got you big ratings, and we filled the arena. Because before that, you guys couldn't draw half the crowd, so how about shutting up? Like all these cruiserweight <laughs> dudes and stuff, God bless you, we need you on the show, but nobody bought a ticket just to see that. So you got to understand, you know, like Rock says, know your role. Like, know your role. And it, it became really frustrating because then guys go, man, it's like all these fucking, and then they go out there and all they do is talk. I go, what are you mad at me for, bro? I'm going to say two words. I'm going to say, like, hey, yo. Now, it might take me three minutes to say them, 
but you know, like, oh, it just it just became a game to me, kind of to see how bad I could stir the guys up in the back. So is there any easy, you hit on it with the guaranteed contracts, but the big debate these days with Eric's podcast, 83 Weeks, and I just moderated at StarCast the panel, The Death of WCW. Uh, so a lot of people still talk about, you know, what went wrong. Is there any easy answer in your opinion of other than maybe the fact that the guaranteed contracts uh, and the creative control were problems? Uh, any, any other answer to what happened to WCW? Well, for me personally, um, you know, I was having a lot of personal demons and I was struggling and the only joy I kind of found was wrestling because my real life sucked. So I was really embracing my fake life. And then when my fake life became unsatisfying, I got right in care. Like I don't need to be on the road to be miserable. I'll just go home. And I really felt bad looking back because here now I'm one of my dearest friends in the world. Kevin Nash is, is the booker. You know, they give him the opportunity to write the TVs. And I felt bad because he was doing what he was doing, but I wasn't really there doing my part supporting him, you know, like I could have been. And when I look back on the whole thing, you know, it was what it was. A lot of people made money. A lot of wrestling fans had a good time. I know the whole crew had a good time. I thought we had a great crew, you know, from you, from the production assistants, you know, to the camera guys. I mean, I, I learned that early on, again, from, from Perfect. Like, you know, babyface the crew. Baby, well, Perfect always say babyface the crew because they got all the good drugs. <laughs> but, I mean, <laughs> he would, he, you know, he would also tell you, hey, man, like, these guys, these cameramen, they've been here forever. They work for Vince's dad. And sometimes I would go to the guy and go, hey, bro, like, is there any place special I could stand in the ring where you can light me better and shoot me better? You go, well, actually, yeah, if you would move up a foot from where you are standing. And I go, wow, thanks so much, man. Because they're never going to come to a tower and tell you to move. Because that's not their job. That's like somebody on the wrestling side job to say, hey, move up a little bit. So, you know, like Vince's crew was so school because the, to me the difference was you know, the WCW crew, they also filmed uh, Braves games. They filmed NASCAR races. They filmed everything. When you work for Vince's crew, those guys only film wrestling, and and they've, they've done it for years. The director of Vince's show, his father used to direct the show when Vince's father ran it. So they've got a continuing thread that runs through that company. I've often said that, and I'll say this in closing, the difference – between WWE and WCW is WCW is a television company that programs wrestling that produced a wrestling show. The WWE is a wrestling company that produced a TV show. Now I know you understand that a lot of people listening may not, but it's a huge difference. It's a huge difference. And, um, I just want to say thanks for having me, man. Hey, thanks so much, Scott. I appreciate your time. It is great. And uh, good luck to you. God bless you, Dave. Wow. That was fun. Uh, my producer marked out on, on Twitter, and uh, I, I marked out myself, and uh, it was great to, to talk to Scott. And uh, it's great. He, he was ready to go, and he wrapped it up himself. Hey, thank you, and I'm leaving now. And uh, God bless him. That's uh, how a professional does it. And, you know, people can say a lot. Uh, about Scott, uh, but uh, like I said earlier, uh, when when he's when he's in a good place, uh, he's a good guy, 
And um, thank, I want to thank him once again for his time, uh, for his generosity, and uh, wish him nothing but the best. So next week, we got to figure out a way how to try to top that. <laughs> or we can just like end the podcast now. All right, this is the end. City Ringside is... No, uh, can't do that. Uh, we'll have to figure out uh, ways to top it, but it's going to be tough. I'm not going to lie. But uh, hope you enjoyed uh, City Ringside. If this is the first time you've listened because... Yeah, mic drop, exactly, as Jerry P. Tuck said. If this is the first time you've listened because of uh, you wanted to hear Scott Hall give a rare podcast uh, interview, uh, hey, if you like what you uh, what you heard, uh, please uh, be sure to subscribe and, and follow us. And it's it's great. You wake up on Monday morning and, and in your inbox, you got a boom, you got another episode. And uh, we just like to tell stories and talk to people, uh, some WWE Hall of Famers like Scott Hall, some that people uh, don't talk about a lot anymore. We're going to, one of the uh, people that we're going to be talking to down the road here very soon is Tommy Young, who's famous, uh, if you're not familiar, is a famous, re- Google him, famous referee for Jim Crockett Promotions in the NWA and uh, one of the best referees of all time. And uh, I mean, he has as many stories to tell as Scott Hall does. So you just never know. Last week uh, we had Rip Rogers, politically incorrect. Somebody tweeted me and said they felt like they had to wash, take a shower after listening to that. I didn't think it was that bad, but uh, but uh, I think they. I don't think it was a shower. I think they said they had to go to uh, what, what? What is it? I'm Jewish. I don't know this stuff. You have to go to uh, uh, confess your sins or something. I don't know. Whatever it's called. Anyway, I'm rambling, so I apologize. But yeah, hey, if this was your first time and you enjoyed it, uh, this is what we do every week. We just tell stories, and uh, we'd love for you to be a part of it. Give us a rating if you can, if uh, the platform allows that, and uh, spread the word. That's all we ask. So until next time, when we try to top Scott Hall, this is David Penzer. I'm still sitting ringside. Thanks so much. Follow David Penzer on Twitter at David Penzer. Also, make sure to follow the show on Twitter at Penzer Ringside. You've been sitting ringside with David Penzer on Radio Influence. I'm Jerry Petock, CEO of Radio Influence. I just wanted to take a quick moment to say thank you for downloading and subscribing to this podcast. There are a lot of people behind the scenes here at Radio Influence that work hard to keep you entertained day in and day out. If you'd like to get involved and advertise on this program, or you have some show ideas that you'd like to see us add to the Radio Influence family, please email us at contact at radioinfluence.com. We all have crazy schedules, so the fact that you took time out of your busy day to let us entertain you for a while means a lot. Without you, the listeners, we wouldn't exist. So thank you again for downloading and subscribing to this show. Don't forget to check out radioinfluence.com to see what other shows we also have to offer. All of Radio Influence's programming can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and of course, RadioInfluence.com. <laughs>